CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. It's a big day in downtown Atlanta today. Rudolph Giuliani, uh, Donald Trump's personal lawyer, is going to testify before the special grand jury investigating the efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And we know that uh, local and national media will be converging on the Fulton County Courthouse where the special grand jury is meeting. We're going to talk about all that and a lot more on the show today. Before I introduce the panel, I have to do something now because I'll forget to do it later in the show. Today is Newsletter Day, Political Rewind Newsletter Day. Um, We put it out every Wednesday. It comes right to your inbox. And uh, we'd love to have you subscribe. All you have to do is go to uh, gpb.org slash newsletters, and you can get it in your inbox. Um, And I do it now because, uh, uh, you know, I'm always, Natalie and Chase are always saying, don't forget to promote the newsletter. And I always do. So that's out of the way. Now let's get right to the news. Greg Bluestein, AJC political reporter and my partner on Wednesdays is with us today. Greg, a quick thanks for uh, your filling in for me as host last week while I was off with my wife in Colorado. It was such an honor and it reminds me how much harder your job is than mine being a guest on the show. <laughs> well, I'm not quite sure I agree with that, but anyhow, thank you for taking uh, the time to be a host. Uh, Tanya Washington, professor of law at Georgia State University, is back with us. It's a pleasure to have you here, Tanya. Good morning. It's great to be here. Uh, and you are joined by uh, the person who I think most of us consider the dean of political science professors in the state of Georgia, uh, among other reasons, because of his tenure, Charles Bullock, who began teaching at the University of Georgia in the... When did you start your career at UGA, Chuck? Uh, too long ago, 1968. Yeah, back in the uh, years. No one remembers at this point. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I thought. Well, you know, we always love having you on the show. And we're joined again by Rick Nett, Vice President of Matrix Communications, who we've really come to rely on during this campaign season because no one tracks ad spending and the commercials that are being dropped by the candidates the way that Rick does. And it's been a real pleasure to have you as a, a pretty regular uh, panelist on the show, uh, Rick Nett. And I just want to repeat to your audience what I put on Facebook. I'm so glad you're back because Bluestein almost wrecked this show. I thought they were going to cancel you. Uh, Thank you, Rick. Uh, Let's get right to the news of the day. Uh, Greg Bluestein, this is a huge day with Rudolph Giuliani coming to testify. I think it was uh, Soledad O'Brien is in town for it. And I think uh, the Jolt reports that she saw Giuliani last night at uh, the, uh, I guess, Ritz-Carlton downtown. So he's in town. We don't know how he got here. Did he come by car, by train? Did he fly? But he's here, Greg. 
He's here. Uh, his lawyer would not tell us if he took the midnight train or an Uber. Um, but, but they were fighting uh, air travel, saying that because he had two recent heart procedures, he couldn't he couldn't fly. But, you know, as we all know, there's lots of other ways to, to uh, uh, our beautiful city of Atlanta. Um, and he, he was at the Ritz-Carlton last night. So with that, O'Brien also reports the peach cobbler there is very good. So keep that in mind. And this morning, we have a number of photos of him walking into the courthouse. Uh, alongside a very interesting uh, lawyer, Vernon Jones, is with him. Vernon Jones ah. being the former uh, gubernatorial slash House candidate who's endorsed by Trump for a U.S. House seat out in Charles Bullock's area in Athens, um, is apparently, I don't know if he's Rudy Giuliani's lawyer or just someone or just an ally, but he is walking into the courthouse with him this morning. Um, Chuck, what should we expect? The special grant, we know we should say, of course, that the proceedings of the special grand jury are, are closely held. They're a secret. We are not going to get a readout from anyone about what he is asked. But what should we expect are the kinds of questions that are going to want to get answered today? Well, I think they're going to probably bore in on the kinds of statements he was making before that state Senate committee that he appeared before back in it was December, I guess, of 2020 where he was giving misleading information. Now, and what we saw happening back then was attorneys who cannot, or at least their ethics say they cannot go into court and spread misinformation. So they were doing it outside when they were holding press conferences, and then once they went to court, they became very quiet. So I think there'll be a lot of questions directed at what he was saying outside. Uh, did he really believe it? Did he have evidence for this? Uh, and what was he hoping to achieve? And I suspect that we, you're right. We're not going to find out what he testifies to, but my guess is that he's probably not going to say much. <laughs> he will invoke a lawyer-client privilege or maybe even have to invoke the Fifth, Fifth Amendment self-protection. But uh, I, my guess is he's not going to be very forthcoming. Tanya, as a professor of law, let me ask you a couple of uh, legal questions about this uh, here. Um, number one, we know he has now been named as a target of uh, the special grand jury, which doesn't mean he necessarily will be indicted for whatever violations of the law the special grand jury may be looking at, but it does put him on alert that he could be indicted. Um, How does that reshape what he's likely to say today? Well, I think um, Professor Bullock is absolutely right that he will likely invoke uh, the Fifth Amendment and attorney-client privilege. But even... Even if that's his response to every single question, um, you can still glean some information. I would be surprised if they didn't show clips of him making his appearances um, in Georgia right after the election and asking him, on what basis did you make this assertion? Because the question is, did you know at the time that you were making these statements whether they were true or false. And it is important to note that you can lie to the court of public opinion, like people do it all the time. Um, As an attorney, however, you know, you have a duty to the bar um, to make sure that anything that you say in court is true. So I anticipate a very, very long day for Mr. Giuliani. Um, Fonnie Willis is, uh, and is, and the other attorneys with whom she's working are masters of their craft. And in Georgia, we believe in the law. And I think this um, confirms that Atlanta is at the center of the political universe and that all politics are local. 
Oh, Tanya, I want to ask you one more question and then bring bring Rick in. You, you, you said an important thing. Uh, did Rudolph Giuliani know whether some of the statements he made in the hearings at the state capitol were true or false? And one example of that that we've heard a lot about is the video that he presented, which allegedly showed two Fulton County election workers pulling uh, uh, ballots out of a, a bag underneath a table. He claimed that those were fake ballots being fed into the uh, machines that uh, record ballots. If it, it, There's got to be some reason to suspect that Giuliani knew what he was saying about those videos. That video was a lie, right? Or else he's not going to be held accountable for that. Absolutely. I mean, I am sure that the attorneys have investigated that incident in particular, spoken with other witnesses who were present, spoken with other people who knew what was happening in that video, and that will allow them to question him about whether his interpretation of what he saw was consistent with the truth or consistent with a lie. And he, because his statements were so very specific, because his allegations were so very clear, he's kind of boxed himself into a corner. And the most he can say is, I don't know and I don't remember, or plead the fifth, or, you know, assert attorney-client privilege. He's, he's not going to have a good day. I hope he had the peach cobbler last with- night. <laughs> Rick, a couple questions for you. You've worked with a lot of pol- politicians over your career doing consulting work. What would you have told Rudolph Giuliani last night about what his position should be as he goes into this grand jury today? I might have fled the country. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, this this is an example of the life changing impact that politics has had on this country in the last six years. Because when you think about this man, he was America's mayor. He was a hero. Everybody loved him. And then what happened? He went from America's mayor to America's clown. And it really is, it's sad to see. And I think it's very tragic. It's really tragic, and it shows the impact of the kind of politics we're going through right now. So the other part of that question, Rick, is uh, we all know that uh, Rudolph Giuliani has never met a microphone or a camera that he wasn't immediately in love with. Uh, So while we're not going to learn what he said to the grand jury— uh, Giuliani is going to come out and be surrounded by uh, cameras and microphones. What do you imagine uh, his, the likelihood is that he'll say nothing and move on? Uh, you know, the, the advice would be, because he is who he is, um, is you go right at him. You just declare that this is a witch hunt. It's always been a witch hunt. Uh, there's nothing to this for them to drag me down here. Um, and it's an abuse of the judicial process. And uh, as James Carville used to say, the best defense is a strong offense. And, you know, my opponents can't talk if my fist is in your face. That was the comment. And that's, that would be my advice to, to the mayor. Greg Bluestein, jump in. Yeah, well, speaking to reporters outside the courthouse uh, shortly after he disembarked from his vehicle. So he is um, he's with Vernon Jones right now. 
um, he was asked whether or not he, uh, how he got to Atlanta. He quipped, I didn't walk. So um, is he about to break any giant news? No. You know, we can expect, you know, we can, we can guess what we'll hear from him, um, which is he did nothing wrong. And, and uh, we can also expect him to either plead the fifth or, or claim attorney-client privilege over and over again um, behind closed doors. We, we, we won't know exactly what he's asked or what he says, but his lawyers have already made it very clear that he will not do anything uh, to further their investigation or to incriminate himself. And now that we know he's a potential criminal target, he, he, can, he has more I, – I think he has more legal latitude to go complete the fifth. I'm not a lawyer. But I'm guessing. I'm seeing some lawyers uh, nod their heads. So um, – so, you know, it might not be 400 times like Donald Trump <laughs> pleaded uh, the fifth 400 times in his deposition um, in his appearance before the New York Attorney General the other day. But we can imagine there's not going to be some earth shattering news. But could prosecutors still, you know, get something out of this? Could this still be um, something that is used down the road, uh, something useful, valuable? Who knows? Right. Um, but we, we do know that he is a target of a potential criminal investigation. And that's changed the ball game here. Um, so, uh, 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 Rick, we, we also know that the Fulton County grand jury, uh, Fonnie Willis is moving up the chain now. I mean, when you bring in Rudolph Giuliani, uh, you're no longer just talking about state Republicans. You've moved up into the heart of the Trump allies uh, nationally. Uh, John Eastman is in court this week. He, of course, the lawyer who basically came up with the plot to create these false electors who would replace the uh, Biden electors on January uh, 6th. He's fighting in court in Colorado to not have to testify in front of the grand jury. Lindsey Graham is still fighting. He'll make an appeal to the 11th Circuit Court. But Rick, one of the things I want to ask you about in terms of that, and then I'd love to hear the rest of you weigh in. You know, it struck me that it was a little dismaying to hear a United States Senator, Lindsey Graham, who said that the reason he's fighting to not testify is he opposes this, quote, weaponization of law enforcement, of a grand jury for political purposes. And he doubted the legitimacy of the process. Rick, what's your reaction to hearing that? Well, you know, as a professional, if I uh, was advising him, that's exactly what I would tell him to say. I have to say that, but that's Chuck? exactly what he should be saying. <laughs> yeah, so again, the uh, Trump, Trump crowd is not going to do anything to advance our knowledge, our understanding of what was happening here. Uh, and so by you know, denigrating the whole process, uh, both ones proclaiming your innocence and then saying it's the other group, the group that's investigating this, these are the bad guys. Uh, and you know that when you make that kind of argument, you've probably got at least 45% of Georgians, 45% or so of all Americans who are going to believe you and agree with you. So it's not like you're, you're shouting down a well and nobody's listening, and you're providing the rationale for that component of the electorate to say, I don't care what evidence they, should, they come up with, uh, it's not credible, it's all political. And again, most Americans, you know, other than the five of us on this panel today, don't care that much about politics, don't follow it that much. And if you give them a a rationale that they can buy into very quickly, they're going to accept it and just shrug. So, you know, know, when we think about November and beyond that into 2024, is this having any impact? 
Yeah, it probably is, but it's that fairly small sliver of folks who are not firmly committed either to the Democratic or the Republican camp. And in a toss-up state like Georgia, yeah, those groups, they really make a difference. In a place like Wyoming, no, they don't. There's not enough of them out there to make any <laughs> difference. But in Georgia, it could make a difference. Tanya? Yes, um, to your point about kind of the national folks that are being invited to Georgia, uh, Senator Graham's uh, petition to quash a federal subpoena uh, um, served on him by Fannie Willis was denied. So he also will be taking the midnight train to Georgia and sitting in front of a grand jury and having a conversation. And I think it's also important to note that that same federal judge said that sovereign immunity fails to shield Senator Graham. So he will be able to, he won't be able to argue attorney-client privilege, right, because he was not an attorney, operating as an attorney, but he'll be able to plead the fifth, but he's going to have to come down here and answer questions. And as someone who has taught virtually and taught in person, and you know this, Professor Bullock, there's a difference <laughs> between sitting in your own space and videoing it in versus having to sit in a room with people and answer questions, even if your answer is going to be the, essentially no comment. Mm -hmm. um, I do, Greg, want to make sure we're careful about one aspect of this. It's true that federal district court judge here uh, in Atlanta has told Graham that the speech and debate clause does not protect him from testifying uh, to matters that don't involve his work in the United States Senate. He has appealed it up to the 11th Circuit. And, Greg, the 11th Circuit is one of the most conservative court uh, appeals court is one of the most conservative in the country. We don't quite know what they'll do. Yeah, we don't know what they'll do, and we don't know what you know what, what the three-judge panel who's deciding this will end up uh, looking like, and we'll, how they'll decide. Um, but we do know that Judge McBurney in Fulton County Superior Court has been very tough, um, and and very, um, uh, you know, he, he is not taking many excuses. Right, he he is urging, finding other ways to urge each of these these potential witnesses to testify. And I know for a long time, too, in order to clear the way for Rudy Giuliani to testify, it was also urging prosecutors to make it known whether or not he was a criminal target of this investigation, mm -hmm. which helped clear the way for that development just a few days ago. Okay, so we will all be watching carefully to see what happens uh, today, what Rudolph Giuliani has to say uh, about his being called to testify. Clearly, uh, our reporter, Stephen Fowler, will be downtown. The AJC will probably have you'll probably have a number of people, I assume, down there, Greg Bluestein, and we'll be watching very closely what happens. Um, I would like to talk um, for a couple minutes about the Liz Cheney defeat in Wyoming. Uh, Greg Bluestein, uh, it was no surprise. Uh, she lost to Harriet Hagman by a landslide. I think she was 60-something to 29% of the vote. But uh, ever since she began her uh, campaign to undermine Donald Trump's lies, became a chair, co-chair of the January 6th committee, it's been pretty clear that the conservative voters of Wyoming, Greg, were unlikely to want to return her to Congress. Yeah, this is no surprise. Um, 
there was, and I think it went beyond Donald Trump. You know, that, that of course, was the motivating factor for a lot of voters. But also there is concerns from Wyoming Republicans that she no longer reflected the conservative values of Wyoming, that she was spending too much time in Washington, too much time on national TV, all that. You know, th- those types of arguments you hear a lot uh, from, from challengers saying that the Republican incumbents are disconnected with, with, their, with their grassroots. Um, Chuck, I'd like to play a soundbite from uh, Liz Cheney's uh, concession speech last night and then ask you and the other panelists to weigh in on uh, what she had to say. Here it is. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73% of the vote. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear. But it would have required that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election, It would have required that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. This primary election is over, but now the real work begins. Chuck Bullock, I was particularly interested in the last part of that. Now the real work begins, the speculation that she will launch a campaign for president. Yeah. Uh, let me say one thing about the first part of that comment, though. You know, we always hear that <clears throat> big politician there is a you know, bridge too far they won't cross. And here we actually have an example of a politician who said, no, I cannot go there. And I know it will end my career, but I'm not going there. Now, in terms of where she can go in the future, you know, unless there is uh, just a titanic change in the orientation of the Republican Party, you know, there's really no path for her to run successfully uh, in 2024 for Republican nomination. You know, she would have to have some kind of broad-based uh, multi-party support, and you don't get that when you're running in a presidential preference primary. So, you know, she might use her influence to support others. Um, yeah, most she could probably do would be to try to convince people not to vote for a Republican nominee in November of 2024 if that person were still uh, articulating the, the Trump lies about the election. But I don't see, at least in the short run, any path for her to resume her career within the GOP. I, I think the key is how do you define success? And think about this. If President Trump is running again, his opponents are not going to know how to handle him, certainly won't know how to attack him for fear of alienating too many primary voters. But Cheney could be the stalking horse funded by Democrats, <laughs> independents, all those groups, George Soros, and she just take that with one goal destroy Donald Trump, and that might be success for her. Tanya? Yes. Um, I mean, I, I love that she contextualized her concession speech to highlight um, that one of the hallmarks of a democracy is that when you lose, <laughs> you admit that you lose, right? Because that stands in stark contrast to what she's, the reason that she doesn't have a career moving forward in the GOP is because she is calling out someone who lost but will not concede that he lost. Um, And so I thought it was brilliant that she used that moment 
Um, and she still has the Cheney name, right? She still has kind of the, the support of the establishment, even though that's not at the heart of the GOP right now. But she does have those assets that, that would make her um, a great kind of outside influence um, to uh, challenge Trump if he does decide to run again. You know, Greg, um, Ch- Cheney is obviously the big, big uh, story headline coming out of the election. But Harriet Higman is an interesting uh, uh, candidate, too. In 2016, she called Donald Trump a racist, said he was xenophobic. And then uh, it, she changed her thinking about him a couple years later. And I'm looking at a, um, a, a story from uh, the Cowboy State Daily in Wyoming. And the lead of it says, congressional candidate Harriet Hagman was fooled into opposing the presidential bid of President Donald Trump in 2016 by, quote, Democrats and Liz Cheney's friends in the media. She's like Elise Stefanik. She's like so many Republicans who jump on the Trump train when they realize it's a path to success. It's a I just find it, well, like, just react to it, if you would. Yeah, I mean, haven't we heard this over and over again? J.D. Vance in Ohio is another example. Um, State Representative Josh McLaurin uh, here in Georgia was his roommate in uh, graduate school and remembers, you know, has text messages they sent back and forth about, you know, how much J.D. Vance opposed Donald Trump and thought he was bad for the country. And now he is he's banking on Donald Trump's endorsement. Uh, in that Senate race, right? But we've seen this over and over again. Um, we saw a number of you know, Republican politicians in Georgia just kind of bite their tongues in 2016 and not say anything about Trump. But we also heard others um, who did. And, and forever, some of them were forever more branded, you know, never Trumpers and, and enemies. And others, you know, were able to kind of jump that, <laughs> jump over that, that mountain and, and now are defining themselves as Trump loyalists. I, I don't, I don't, you know, there's book to be written about how they do that, but it's definitely happening all over the country. Rick, what does this tell you about Jeff Duncan? I mean, here's a guy who early on said, I will not uh, go along with Donald Trump and his uh, claims that the election was a fraud. I'm going to distance myself from him. He starts, you know, GOP 2.0. As the primaries have unfolded, it doesn't look like there's a lot of room for GOP 2.0. And uh, Liz Cheney may be a textbook example of how far you can get with that anti-Trump messaging. Well, yeah, and it's interesting. Uh, as Greg pointed out in, in one of his articles, you know, it really is about local politics these days. And Trump does have kind of a up-and-down record. The thing I love about all of this is Donald Trump reminds me of like Jason in those Friday the 13th uh, movies um, where you think you killed him when you burned him to death and then you, you got him with an axe and then he keeps coming with a knife. And you, you, you just got to admire that kind of pers- perseverance that he just keeps coming no matter the number of hits and what he said about him. He keeps coming. And I, how do you kill him? How do you kill Jason? (laughs) Chuck Bullock, way in before the break. Yeah, these examples, uh, for example, the Jeff, uh, Greg gave of uh, this conversion to Trumpism from J.D. Vance, Elise Stefanik, Harriet Hagman. 
mean, that is what we so often see among politicians is that they put their own careers and they say, well, the ends justify the means. And that's what makes uh, Jeff Duncan and uh, and Liz Cheney so out of the mainstream in that they did not do this, that they have stuck by their commitment to what they believe to be good for the republic, even though it means that their political careers right now are on the rocks. All right, Chuck Bullock gets the last word in this segment of Political Rewind. Uh, we got a lot more to talk about. We'll do that when we come back in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Rick Dent of Matrix Communications, Tanya Washington of Georgia State University, Charles Bullock, professor of political science at University of Georgia, and Greg Bluestein are on the show today. Greg, just for a moment, uh, and we'll refer people to your article, post a link to it. Um, you wrote a piece that Chuck Bullock referred to right before uh, the break, uh, ask, trying to answer the question, why did Trump candidates not do as well here in Georgia as they've done in so many other primaries across the country? What was the conclusion you came to? Well, a couple. Um, and the more we, you know, the more we see outcomes like Wyoming, the more Georgia seems like not the only outlier, but one of the few outliers where Trump candidates were rejected. Um, and, and one reason, of course, is incumbency. You know, all, all the, uh, the the incumbents who faced Trump back challenges all won by huge margins. But there's also, uh, as Rick Dent said, uh, as part of the article, um, you know, there's also some crossover votes from independents and Democrats who wanted to, to support uh, these these Republican incumbents against far right challengers. Uh, there's also the maverick streak of voters who say they don't want to be told what to do by anyone, uh, including Donald Trump, as much as they might, you know, like his uh, his his priorities and his agenda. Um, and you know, I think above all, uh, it was platforms and policies. You know, the, these Republican candidates could continue to point back to their their record in office, um, and whether folks like them or don't like them, they had something to point back to, whereas challengers were kind of promising the moon. They were promising anything they could. They were saying all sorts of, you know, outlandish promises that, you know, that we were reporting were, were, were going to be impossible to deliver upon. Um, Rick, what's interesting is that an open primary state like Georgia, Brad Raffensperger could uh, win easily because there were any number of Democrats who chose to come over and reward him for taking a stand against Donald Trump, as opposed to Liz Cheney in Wyoming, where even though she encouraged Democrats to come across and vote for her, there just aren't enough Democrats to uh, make make it possible to win. Uh, that's right. And uh, what, Trump took Wyoming with 70% of the vote? I think it was his best day. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, Chuck had made that, that point earlier. There's just not enough to come over and help. Whereas here in Georgia, uh, what, the research showed, I think the AJC reported it was anywhere from 7 to 10%. You move those kind of numbers into a primary and you can make a difference. And apparently that's what happened here. Um. 
Chuck Bullock, um, let me ask you, and then Tanya, please weigh in on this. Let's move on and talk about how Georgia Republicans are reacting to the search at Mar-a-Lago. And and I want to start by playing sound from one of the people we just talked about, Jody Heiss, who ran for Secretary of State against Raffensperger, of course, had the backing of Donald Trump, but lost uh, pretty substantially. Um, He was on Newsmax, and here's what Jody Heiss uh, had to say about the Mar-a-Lago raid and all of these legal uh, complications that face Donald Trump right now. Uh, former president of the United States, if they can do this to him, they can do this to anyone. And one of the big questions I have is why, evidently, allegedly, were his attorneys not allowed to witness this? I mean, who is to say in this kind of case that some of the documents supposedly seized were not planted there to begin with? This whole thing has been done improperly. Chuck, again, I, I, I raise this question of how far, in this case, Republicans, let's be candid, are willing to go to undermine the institutions that have been respected by the people of this country for hundreds of years. Right. And what's really interesting here is that Heiss and a lot of other Republicans immediately jumped on this and began accusing the Biden administration, the attorney general, the FBI of all kinds of things, which you know, just a day or two later, we find out is untrue. So that we now learn that uh, you know, Trump's attorneys were there. They signed off on the removal of these documents. So those allegations, some of those which were made by Heiss, you know, simply are untrue. And had he waited you know, a day or two before rushing to judgment, you know, he would not have said these things. Now, of course, since he's been defeated already, it doesn't have any kind of political consequences. And even again. You know, his making those allegations for that strong commitment, uh, strong component of Georgia's electorate that is committed to Trump, you know, they would continue to believe him and believe these allegations, even in the fight of evidence showing that they're, you know, falsifiable. So, yeah, this again promotes the career of, of, of Republicans right now. Um, and it's, you're right, it's not good for the, the state of the Republic. Tanya, uh, uh, the, go ahead. Go ahead, Tanya. I, I think we see some Republicans um, distancing themselves or at least remaining silent because every day new information is coming out. And when they t- rush to, to judgment and may- take a position and then they have to backtrack, that costs them some, you know, political points. And so I think what they should do is wait until all of the information comes out. Trump is now calling for the affidavit to be unsealed. Let's see what information was presented that would prompt a judge and prompt um, the, the top cop of the DOJ to actually do something this extraordinary and let the facts play out before they take a position. But I think the call of framing this as a witch hunt is just too seductive to allow them to rely on the facts. Yeah, Rick, uh, the knee-jerk response from Republicans was immediate. I mean, we we heard it in the hours after uh, news moved that the search had uh, uh, taken place. Um, and, And I do wonder if Tanya makes a point here. Uh, that the more we learn about what really happened and what led to this search, is it possible 
that some Republicans are going to have to be very careful and back away from their most extreme comments? Or does it not matter at all? Scott, you asked the cynic, does it matter at all? Of course it doesn't matter. Uh, (laughs) Most of these Republicans are safe. They're playing to their base. Uh, Politicians will say whatever gets them votes, and they won't say it if it hurts them. And until this starts to hurt them, they're going to continue to say it. Now, some folks have, have argued, you know, they came out immediately and said, you know, witch hunt. And that for somehow, now that all this evidence is piling up, maybe they should back up, back, back off of that. No, 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 no. You go even harder. As the facts stack up against you, you go harder and harder and harder. You do not back up. Greg? I have to begrudgingly agree with Rick's cynicism. Uh, you know, I, I pay really close attention to what the candidates on the campaign trail say. You're not hearing Governor Kemp bring up this investigation. You're not hearing Stacey Abrams. Um, you know, if they're asked about it, they'll talk about it. But it's not forefront on their minds, and it's not forefront on the minds of a lot of Georgia voters either. Um, some, of course, are watching this very closely. But here we are a day after President Biden signs into law the sweeping federal climate and health care and tax bill. And, to the, and this isn't just here. This is everywhere. To the Democrats' chagrin, there is not much talking. You know, there's not much media attention. The New York Times front page you know, was more about Donald Trump than it was about President Biden's um, signature domestic policy initiative so far. And this is why Democrats want to continue to, to you know, even if they think it can help them score points with some of the most liberal supporters, they're not bringing this up. And Republicans, you know, especially the sort of uh, more mainstream Republicans here in Georgia aren't, aren't talking about this either. Uh, just to be clear, that is going to be a major part of our conversation on the show tomorrow. Uh, whether this Biden package and victory is going to improve the odds for Democrats uh, in the 2022 midterm. Rick, you want to make a point? I was just going to add one thing. If you want to know the difference between Republicans and Democrats and who's good at politics and who's bad, let me tell you, if Republicans had been in charge and they had a message like a legislative achievement like that, they would have coordinated the assault at the president's home. Democrats did not coordinate, and they have obliterated one of their best messages in months. Yeah, um, well, but Chuck, what Rick is suggesting is that there was that perhaps Democrats and the Justice Department should have been on the same page about all this. And, and I wonder yeah. if his cynicism has gone to the extreme in this case. Now, well, what we've, what we've seen is that the, you know, every, both uh, the president uh, the White House, as well as the attorney general's office, have claimed that they are, are not coordinated. And this, of course, goes back to uh, the perception during the Trump years that uh, Donald Trump was trying to get the Justice Department to act as his arm, the attorney general. He thought that Jeff Sessions should have been his attorney and should have stopped the investigation back into those claims of Russian involvement back way back in 2016. So, yeah, it's easy to see why the Democrats don't want to seem to be playing the same game. Although, again, you're building on Rick's cynicism, which is usually accurate. You know, Democrats could have gone back, played the Republican game, and not many people remember back to 2016. So they, they could have coordinated, and yeah, you know, nobody would have, would have really probably called them out or paid much attention to it. Tanya, quick so, comment before the break. As, 
Yeah, as the resident um, naive person on this panel, who is going to remain naive, um, you know, I, I appreciate that the Democrats want to follow the rules, right? They want to do things in adherence to the rules and adherence to the norms. Now, to Rick's point, that may lead to losing uh, in the court of public opinion and some elections, but I think there's something to be said for adherence to the rules. All right. Uh, Tanya Washington, you get the last comment uh, in this segment. Let's take a break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about ad spending in the Georgia top races when we return. Rick Dent, in reading The Jolt this morning, I see you have been dubbed media guru, uh, Rick Dent. Greg Bustein probably wrote that, despite the fact that you have been very mean to him, I think, uh, in recent days. But in any case, uh, you're quoted as saying that there is now more than $270 million worth of ads booked or reserved in Georgia uh, for the general or, or throughout the election process through the cycle. Um, and I want to focus today on the Senate race. We've talked about uh, gubernatorial ads a few times now. $64 million in the race between, oh, I'm sorry, $207 million uh, right. in the Senate race, right, uh, Rick? But between that's, Walker and Warnock. That's, uh, that's right. And uh, again, it just lets you know the, the amount of cash that is in politics these days. And, you know, what are they spending it on? There's no surprise in the advertising that's running. You've got, in terms of the Walker side, they're making the claim that um, Warnock's not a good senator. He's the cause of inflation and all your pain. And he votes with uh, Biden 96% of the time. On the flip side, the Warnock forces, as we said they were going to do, it didn't take a genius to figure this out. That Herschel Walker is a little crazy. And, you know, they were running that very tough ad that we were all waiting to see with the interview with his wife talking about Herschel putting a gun to her head. So that's where we are in the campaign in 2022. I want to talk about that ad in a second, but as long as you mentioned it, Greg Bluestein, let's listen to the audio of the ad that ties Warnock uh, to Biden and talk about that. Here it is. Raphael Warnock has Joe Biden's back. While other Democrats may abandon the president, Joe Biden doesn't have to worry about Warnock. Whether it's the Green New Deal, the climate crisis, immigration policy, or COVID relief, or sending $70 billion to save Ukraine, Warnock has stood with Biden on refocusing our military on white supremacy, transgender rights, or critical race theory. Warnock is a committed progressive. Call Raphael Warnock and thank him for being a senator. President Joe Biden can count on. Greg, your thoughts? Yeah, I saw this ad for the first time while I was watching the Braves game the other night. And at first I was like, wow, you know, I can't believe the Warnock campaign is A, pronouncing his name wrong. <laughs> but B, because I can't believe Warnock. And, and B, you know, advertising his close ties to Joe Biden, because certainly in the campaign trail, if you ask him, uh, you know, how he thinks about President Biden, he'll, he'll keep his distance, right? He, he likes to maintain his independence. Um, 
And then I realized, oh, this is a Republican attack ad. It's masquerading as a pro-Warnock ad. It was very clever, I thought, but we're going to see even more of that. Uh, as Rick pointed out, with so much money being spent, you know, a lot of it's going to go to pr- traditional types of advertising. A lot of it will go to, you know, this sort of surreptitious advertising. We'll see a lot of mailers. We're seeing a lot of unique things on the campaign trail by, beyond the regular stuff, too. Um, we're seeing pro-Warnock groups give out gas vouchers. My colleague Patricia Murphy wrote a big column about it this weekend. Gas vouchers and grocery vouchers. We're seeing ads wait, at the wait, gas station. Wait, wait, pro-Walker You, you p- pro-Walker oh, groups. I, I you said pro-Walker pro- groups. Thank you for okay. that. It won't be the first time or the last. Uh, but pro-Walker groups, we're seeing Stacey Abrams um, finance uh, uh, thousands of ads on gas station TV, you know, the little TV screens you see at gas station pumps. So there's so much money here um, that we'll see a lot of uh, usual spending that maybe some innovative spending, too. John? Yeah, that, that ad that, uh, that we just heard. I mean, last time I was on the show, we were talking about Democrats running ads. <laughs> which were in essence kind of building up very conservative Republicans uh, in hopes that the Republican conservative would win in the primary and Democrats thought it'd be easier to knock off. So, you know, both sides will, will do these kinds of ads, which, again, as Greg said, you first look at this, and you think, gee, this is a, a pro ad for the, the candidate. And then as you listen more and more, you say, oh, no, no, what they're doing is they're dissing the candidate by under undercutting what's perceived to be some of the, the weaknesses within the candidate. So... Yeah, as Greg said, yeah, we, we could almost anticipate we might see things like this coming out, and here they are. Tanya, there's an awful lot we could unpack from that ad, but let me throw out two elements of it that I thought were fascinating. Number one, there's this uh, accu- accusation about the amount of money the United States has been sending to Ukraine, endorsing that very nationalistic trend among uh, conservative Republicans, stay out of foreign affairs. Uh, and And I thought that was... Uh, strange. And this COVID relief argument that Republicans keep using, of course, uh, is contrary to the fact that the state of Georgia is flush with money that uh, Governor Kemp and other Republicans can give out, partly in thanks to all the <laughs> billions that have been spent in COVID relief for the states. Well, as as I'm learning from Rick, facts be damned. Um, the, 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 I mean, the, the ad really just... It's a laundry list of buzzwords, right? CRT and COVID, like all the things that are red meat to the party. So it really doesn't matter whether it's consistent with reality. Um, I am still going to be naive, Rick. So I, I am learning, but I'm not coming over to the dark side yet. Um, but I want to say, look at what we're spending on marketing when we have homeless folks and hungry folks and an affordable housing crisis and a digital divide that is making sure that children in urban schools and in rural schools don't get the education that they receive. Like, we have all of these resources that we could use to address these social problems, and we're spending it on attack ads. Like, that to me is a gross use of resources. Well, there's, Greg, clearly the amount of money in politics uh, in campaigns today is obscene, um, but it's going to continue. Nothing will shut it down uh, unless the Supreme Court reverses uh, one of its biggest decisions in the last uh, uh, 20 years, allowing for unlimited amounts of money to be spent on campaigns, right? 
Yeah, and that's not looking likely. And look, Georgia set all sorts of records in the last cycle for almost a billion dollars, roughly a billion dollars worth of ad spending on those Senate runoffs. And now we're going to set all sorts of midterm records with more than a quarter billion dollars already being spent now. Rick, um, you've already pointed out that the Warnock campaign has a series of very tough ads pointing out the, quote, lies that Hershey Walker has uh, told about his involvement with law enforcement. But you also mentioned, um, and a couple of other things, but you also mentioned this ad in which we hear his former wife talk about having a gun pointed to her head. Walker responded to that with a Wall Street Journal piece this week saying that was from a joint appearance that she and I made on ABC News, in which we were talking about the negative impacts that mental health issues can have on a marriage. Was that the kind of response that might, in fact, be effective? And will he continue that as he moves forward in the campaign? He's used that response, and he's also made it an opportunity to talk about mental health and his problems and how you shouldn't stigmatize that. But he also understands, and again, now this is not cynicism, this is a fact. A Wall Street Journal piece or a story by Greg Bluestein that says this is, is false cannot compete if I have $2 million for a week to put my message into your living room. I win. I'll win that argument. Chuck, in addition to the ads... Yeah, that's very well, I'm powerful. Sorry, I mean, in, yeah, well, I'm sorry, Chuck. Yeah, I'm sorry. I stepped on you. But, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that ad is, is uh, tremendously powerful. For any woman who has been in any kind of abusive relationship, she sees that and says, oh, my God, yeah, I mean, you know, I had similar thing happen to me, or at least it didn't go that far. So, yeah, I think Rick is absolutely right. Yeah, you, I don't know how you counter an ad like that with uh, <laughs> once it's seen out there, because it's something you, I think a lot of women particularly are going to remember. Yeah. Uh, Tanya, before we run out of time, I want to play a positive Warnock spot. Uh, he's got a lot of attack ads, but I do want to have a chance to play this. It's a, a spot which talks about how Warnock worked with uh, other Democrats to get compensation for service members who were involved in cleanups of burn pits, which was a huge issue just a couple of weeks ago on the Hill. Republicans fought initially against the funding. They finally gave in, and now Warnock's taking advantage of it in the audio that we'll listen to in this spot. We were there to serve our country, but in the process, we were exposed to toxic chemicals and denied proper care when we got home. But Raphael Warnock's changed things. He helped pass a law to expand health care for tens of thousands of Georgia veterans. It wouldn't have happened without Senator Warnock, and we won't forget that. Tanya, Warnock's campaign team has done a wonderful job in two campaigns now of knowing how to put together positive spots, not just attack ads. Absolutely. That highlight what he's done in issues that are um, that have that appeal to bipartisan voters, right? I mean, we've got veterans across the political spectrum. And the other brilliant thing about this, in, in addition to the powerful ad, is that it stands in contrast to uh, um, I can't even remember his name. Uh, the the other gentleman running for senator, Walker Herschel Walker. <laughs> I'm sorry. It stands in contrast to Walker's record with veterans, right, which has been characterized as exploitative and fraudulent. 
Greg, a last comment because we're running out of time. The, the Warnock campaign, do you agree they know how to balance the negative and the positive pretty well? Uh, they, they exemplified that back in the 2020 campaign. Um, and you know, right now we're seeing efforts to undermine Herschel Walker's credibility. We'll see if they go more negative um, and, and, and bring up some of these, uh, these domestic violence allegations as well. All right. We are out of time. I'm really grateful to this panel for doing such a terrific job uh, talking about uh, the important news of the day. Greg Bluestein, Charles Bullock, Rick Dent, Tanya Washington, thank you for being here uh, for Political Rewind. We're back again tomorrow, and we will talk about this huge package which Joe Biden signed into law yesterday and how it could affect Democrat chance, Democratic chances in 2022's midterm election. All that and more tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.